0: Scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, and then also chapter 5, verses 1 through 2a. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. We uh, have some special guests in worship today. You might look around and notice we've got some smaller people around. We uh, give our teachers for the Orange uh, Teaching Time a uh, holiday break, and so we have some children in service. So if you're under the age of 12, would you wave at me, please? Come on, I see a few of you out there. There we go. Yeah, all right. Now, adults, please be sure you welcome them after the service. Make sure they feel comfortable being here. And I'll do my very best to keep this interesting, okay? Do my very best. Well, we are gathered here to look at the message of John Wesley. And we do so not just because he's the founder of Methodism, which is one good reason, but also because when you look at John Wesley's life, you see some of his ups and downs. And his faith journey is something I think we could all learn from for our faith journey. And also it's good... Whether you've been a lifelong Methodist or if you're just new to this church and you're not even sure what this Methodist thing's about, you'll discover this month and the things that we think about and talk about with John Wesley that some of that DNA is built into us. And you'll kind of get what a Methodist is and how we're distinguished a little bit from other churches. But just in case you don't know anything about John Wesley, I figure I better share a little bit about him. As we said, he's the founder of Methodism. Uh, he lived in England from 1703 to 1791, and all of his ministry, well, I wouldn't say all of it, but his best ministry all happened in England. You need to understand something to appreciate what John Wesley did, though. The Church of England at that time was a very, it, it was the age of rationalism and deism, and so when you went to church in those days, the sermons were very much like straight lectures, If you were uneducated, you wouldn't even get half the words that they're sharing. And because it was the age of rationalism, deism, basically the view was that God created the world and said, okay, you're on your own. Not much of a sense of spirit. And Wesley saw that as a weakness that needed to be rectified, and he never set out to start a new church. He tried to create a movement of holiness within it. And... So he ended up taking that to the masses. He had a spiritual awakening in himself that you're going to learn a lot more about today. And he actually went and participated in open-air preaching in part because he got kicked out of so many churches that they wouldn't even let him in the church to preach. He actually hated doing it. He was a very formal person. He was educated in Oxford. He was a highly educated person. It seemed so wrong to do that, but he was driven by God and encouraged by people like George Whitfield go out and do so, and to his surprise, he did so with great success, preaching often to thousands as he took the message to the coal fields out in the open air where people were. He averaged 15 sermons a week. He kept a very lengthy daily journal, and so we know so much about his life. He preached 40,000 sermons in his career, and he traveled on horseback all over the country of England. 250,000 miles, which is quite a bit considering that's not that large of a country. And the interesting thing was, in those days, you didn't do altar calls. So this isn't the emotion, this isn't the tent revival kind of thing you might be considering. His movement grew because his words moved people's hearts, and then he quickly would get them moved into a I'd call it more like today's small group movement where it would be societies and bands of people who came together to work together and encourage one another on their own holiness. But here's the neat thing, especially if you're kind of skeptical of churches, the Methodists changed the world. They had a, a great heart for the poor, which was the majority of people in England at that time. This is the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. People would come from the countryside, coming into the city. They lived in ghettos. Many couldn't find work. And so these Methodist societies, when they came together, they'd take an offering. It wouldn't always be much, but they'd use it to help the poor. They'd use it to buy clothing, to buy food. They'd use it to buy medicine. But not only did they do that, but they they worked together to create projects that would give people employment. They would give out microloans that people could use to start businesses. And so most historians, when they look at the face of Europe, You realize that only five countries in Europe did not experience violent revolution in this time period, in the early 1800s, and England was one of those, and many people give Methodism the credit for that because they moved so many people out of poverty into a middle class that grew during this time, so they truly made a difference. Now, what about John Wesley's Awakening? We need to realize that he was already a religious person. He was a very, uh, he was educated at Oxford. He was ordained as a, as a priest. He went and actually helped his father in his local parish for a while. And he was very disciplined. He fasted twice a week. He got up at 4 o'clock in the morning for his Bible study. He did the Eucharist weekly, sometimes daily. He visited people in prison, the sick, the elderly. He was a very religious person. And then he was asked to go to Georgia as a missionary. And when he took on that enterprise, he confessed in his journal that there was something missing for him. There's this quote. He says, my chief motive is the hope of saving my own soul. I hope to learn the true sense of the gospel of Christ by preaching it to the heathen. And so, he got on a ship. But here's the thing. John Wesley was afraid of the water. He'd never been on a ship before. His fear of the water even started in childhood. One wonders if he even did that as a test of his faith. Maybe he would find faith in the process. And so, They got on the ship with 80 other English colonists, 26 Moravians, which is a sect, a religious sect of people, and they went on their way. He was 32 years old. This was 1735. And on that way, he got to know the Moravians. He was very impressed with their spirituality. And then one evening, a storm came up. The Moravians had already started their evening service of praise, and they sang. And as that storm raged against that ship, people were screaming for their lives. They thought, sure, it was going to go be turned over. But he noticed the Moravians stayed calm. They kept singing. even asked the Moravians, aren't your women and children worried? And they said, no, our women and children are And after that episode, he had a conversation with one particular Moravian named Spandenberg. And Spandenberg asked him some questions because he sensed that Wesley was missing something. He asked him, does the Spirit of God witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Wesley didn't quite get who he was talking about. He asked him again, do you know Jesus Christ? And Wesley said to him, I know he is the Savior of the world. Spangenberg responded, true, but do you know he has saved you? And Wesley remembered those words, and he recorded those words. So he gets to Georgia, and he starts a small following. But Wesley, at that point, because he's such a legalist, he's so strict in his spiritual disciplines, that he's not really good at winning friends. First mistake he makes is that on the ship they had a a uh, supply of rum that they were going to use when they arrived in the New World to celebrate. And Leslie confiscated that rum and destroyed it. Mistake number one. With that group of followers that he had, he expected them to rise early. He had his day very carefully planned out because he was ministering not only to the English but to some French colonists to the Native Americans, and so he had his day carefully spelled out, and the first gathering of worship was from five to six thirty, and he would only give you communion if you get up for that early worship time. That didn't win a whole lot of friends either because they appreciated communion every single week. He also tried to reinstate the practices of the early church, and so he requested them to fast. Wednesdays and Fridays until tea time, every week. And so he was turning people the wrong way. But then what brought things to the head was that he had been contracted to teach French to a young lady named Sophia Hopke. She happened to be the niece of her uncle Thomas Coston, who happened to approve the relationship that was growing between her and John Wesley. And so they there were some feelings that started to develop. Wesley even wrote about those in his journal. He also wrote about the struggle that he was having because there was a part of him pulling away that maybe he should be celibate as a priest. And he hadn't quite resolved those feelings. Now, keep in mind, Sophia was like 17 or 18. He was 32 years old, which was not uncommon back then. And her uncle did approve of that uh, relationship. But Sophia got restless and tired of waiting on John Wesley. She was ready to get married. I mean, you get past 18, you're past the married age, right, in those days? And so she ran off with William Williamson, who happened to be a clerk for her uncle. And Wesley was upset. It really bothered him that this seemed to be going on behind his back. And so when she came forward for communion, he refused to give it to her. Well, that's not a smart thing to do when she happens to be the niece of the local magistrate who has the power to set the laws and decide what laws to enforce. And so he filed charges against John Wesley. Now, Wesley might have worked through this eventually, but in addition to that, he was caught in the middle between James Oglethorpe, who had started that colony in Georgia, and Thomas Coston. Thomas Coston wasn't the most honest businessman, and so he got caught up in it. Adam Hamilton says it kind of looks like a soap opera when you get it all said and done. But finally, John Wesley decided the best thing to do was to leave. In the middle of the night, he gets a ship, heads back to England, and he feels like a failure. Well, I want us to stop and think about his failures because I want to ask the question, would John Wesley experience what would come later if he wasn't ready? If his heart hadn't been prepared? Just think how he might still be following those legalistic ways if he hadn't experienced his own failings. Have you experienced that in your life? I've noticed with me, the times that I'm most attentive to God are the times that I discover my human resources have run dry. And there's not enough. And it seems like when I do, God brings someone along in my life, just the right person at the right time. Or there's a message that I hear that somehow shares just what I need to hear. Or He places a thought when I pray, that's just what I need. Or He gives me an opportunity that changes everything for me. I remember a time in my life when that did occur. I was in my second charge. I've been there a few years. Things have been going well church had grown to the point that we had to start a second service. We had launched a preschool, which was bringing some young families into the church. Things seemed to be going pretty well, but I was starting to feel restless. And I was getting a little tired. You know, people will be people, right? In spite of whatever success we had, there were those people that were kind of grumbling because that second service, the music was too loud. It was disturbing their adult Sunday school class. And there was always many issues, and so I began to think, is this really what I want to do the rest of my life? One thing I did enjoy a lot in my ministry was the personal counseling that I would do. Working with people one-on-one, helping them through a crisis. It was very rewarding. So I decided to enroll in a doctoral program at Christian Theological Seminary and work on a degree in pastoral counseling, and I was enjoying that. Been at it for a a full year. And then the stress in my family grew to the point that my wife let me know that she was starting to feel like a single parent. And as I stood back and looked at things from that perspective, I could not blame her. And so I had to make a tough decision. And I went in, talked to my advisor at at the seminary, and said that I would have to quit for the sake of my family. I didn't know what the future would bring. I didn't know what I was going to do. But the interesting thing was just two weeks after I made that decision, I got a letter in the mail inviting me to participate in a new conference initiative called 12 Keys to an Effective Church, led by Canon Callahan, who had offered a book to that title. And the conference was setting up this program where for three years, a group of pastors in the conference would be trained in order to become consultants as well as to apply those principles in the church. And I was honored to be asked to be part of this group. It included a couple of people you might know. Pastor Jack Wolf was in that group and Pastor Bill Belmore as well. And I found that to be such a helpful experience. Callahan took business principles that applied it to church settings and I found things that were so real and valid like like the 2080 rule that 20% of what you do produces 80% of your results. So you need to make sure you protect that time and build on those strengths. And things like that began to bring fruit to to my ministry, that made it fun again. And I look back on that experience and realize if it wasn't for that low time, I might have continued pursuing that degree and I'd gotten out of ministry and I think I would have regretted that because I could celebrate that I have continued to live that out in my life. That's often how God works, I do believe. John Wesley experienced that himself. John Wesley, let's get back to his story. He came back from Georgia, came back to England, and he was prepared to step away from ministry. He was talking to another Moravian by the name of Peter Bowler. And he was discussing this issue, and Peter Bowler said something that every United Methodist pastor has known, has heard, and you probably heard it yourself if you've been around the church for very long, that Peter Bowler said, preach faith till you have it. And then because you have it, you'll preach faith. And that's what Wesley did. Even though he still felt he was missing something, he went about preaching on passages. His favorite book was the book of Romans, where the passage came from today. He found an affinity with the apostle Paul, who seemed to have that same struggle himself. Because Paul was a legalist somewhat like Wesley. He was a zealot who was persecuting Christians. And it wasn't until he was blinded until he experienced his weakness that he found real faith that trusted in God and his grace. And it was John Wesley who experienced that when one evening he went to a home, which was a small group gathered together, and he writes this in his journal. In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's prefaces to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin. So think about it. Would John Wesley have heard those and absorbed those words if he hadn't experienced that storm at sea? Would he have heard those words if he had not experienced that that failure in Georgia? My guess is not. So I encourage you to embrace the storms that you experience in your life to accept those low moments as opportunities for God to teach you and embrace you and let him show you his strength in the midst of your weakness. And in that way, God can help us see what we need for his grace to become real, for him to become our power, to discover what we are missing in our lives. So please embrace those storms because for John Wesley, that's when his ministry truly took off because he had a new fire. It fueled his efforts in far greater ways, not trying to prove anything to God, but because out of his love for what God has done for him, he gave himself freely and fully. So tell me, have you accepted God's acceptance of you? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you help us to see the places in our life where we're trying to work our own salvation where our works is taken the forefront, instead of relying upon your grace, and let that move and motivate us to do those things out of love. As we prepare for this sacrament of Holy Communion, may our hearts be placed in the right place that we need to receive all that you have for us, your forgiveness, your unconditional love. This we ask through Christ who is our Lord.